0: Welcome to Product Storyteller, where you get to meet the people behind the products and ideas that make life awesome. I'm Stuart Noyce, and this is my podcast. Today we have the great pleasure to learn more about Carrie Byron and her art. You know her from Mythbusters, the television show that debunked urban legends and made science fun. As a builder on the show, she had the opportunity to put her creative and artistic spirit into the show's barely controlled scientific chaos. As a host, she became an experienced storyteller. Today, she's super excited to be co-founder of Explorer Media and the host of Crash Test World. In this new role, she gets to tell stories that inspire young people to empathy on a global scale. Well, you will get to hear all about the impact of Explorer Media in this interview, but there is much more. My friend and frequent collaborator, John Michael Scott, joined me to interview Carrie. The two of us have been investigating real-world applications of blockchain and cryptocurrency since 2018, at one point interviewing 18 people for our Blocks Nexus podcast. Well, that curiosity continued here. With Carrie, we wanted to know more about her interest in non-fungible tokens. She had quite a bit to say on the subject, particularly from the artist's perspective. So with that introduction, let's get right to it. Thank you very much for, for being with us today. My name is Stuart Noyce, and I'm recording another exciting episode of the Product Storyteller. And today I have with me an extraordinary guest, Carrie Byron, who's a former Mythbuster, crash test girl, and a co founder of the Explorer Media Group.
1: Hello there. I'm Carrie Byron. And well, I think you just introduced me pretty well. <laughs> I'm most known for being on reality based science, travel, and adventure television over the last. 20 years or so. I've made lots and lots of different shows, but I think Mythbusters was probably the most famous. And currently I'm working on a show called Crash Test World, where we go around the world looking for big ideas and innovations for some of the world's biggest problems. And we focus on sort of the youth innovators and leaders that are are trying to make the world a better place.
0: Excellent. So what is it that's driving you right now? What do you see as the biggest challenge in the world that you are trying to address?
1: Well, (laughs) I mean, I am a storyteller and I'm in entertainment. But over the years of being on Mythbusters, I watched this beautiful thing happen where teachers and parents were using Mythbusters to teach critical thinking and science and inspire kids into learning because we were learning along with them. Television up to that point had been more scientific talking heads telling you about things. Whereas with MythBusters, we were getting our hands dirty. You know, We were experiencing things and learning as we went along because we didn't know what the results were gonna be. So for us, science was more like art. It was this just adventure and curiosity. And I think that kids got excited to learn because they saw us excited and we were all along for the same ride.
0: Yeah, excellent. So, so are you thinking that uh, or seeing that kids may be, um- in need of more of this inspiration or more opportunities? What is it that's driving um, your action? And, you know, what is it that you're hoping to, to take on right now?
1: Well, honestly, I'm just trying to do my part in the world to create empathy. I see a lot of tribalism going on where it seems that the internet and lockdown and COVID has put us all in these sort of small groups trying to find family that it's become very us and them. So I think that the best thing we can possibly do to advance humanity in general is to find empathy. So I've become part of something called Explorer Media, where we're making short content videos that have lesson plans that go with them to help kids connect the dots uh, between Say a kid in Kansas watching a kid in Afghanistan who's watching a kid in Japan, they're all telling their stories and they're all realizing we have more like than different so that maybe we can tackle all of the world's problems with a global empathy and a global sight rather than us, them compartmentalize. I mean, how do you help a pandemic when you only help one country? It's not going to work. It's a global pandemic. So we all kind of have to get into all of our problems together.
0: Excellent. So what role are you playing? I mean we mentioned that you were <laughs> a co-founder of Explore. Is that the is that the role or are there more roles that are going on in here?
1: Well, I'm a mom, so I am very focused on the future because I do have a tween, but my skill set lies in storytelling. So that's what I'm using. So that's why I've been working on trying to tell stories that inspire and incite little agents of change. I, I were a politician or I were a scientist. I would go off in those careers to help, but I am a storyteller. So I use entertainment.
0: Excellent. So what is that, that, you know, that special talent then as a storyteller, where did that come from? And, and where do you think maybe you picked that up when you were, when, was it something you had when you were younger or is it something you, you grew into? I've
1: always been very curious and I've, Pursued things that foster that curiosity. I traveled the world for a full year after college because I just wanted to learn things. I've always been an artist and I'm always trying to figure out how different media collide and crash together. And I've always drawn and, and and painted and made things. I mean, when I was a little kid, I used to make skulls out of cereal boxes just to try to emulate my bone structure by feeling my head and then cutting up a cereal box. Like I've just always had a major curiosity. So Art was my way of storytelling until I kind of fell into Mythbusters, which I thought I was going to be a sculptor in special effects and toy prototyping. Mm -hmm. But the first day I got an internship at M5 uh, Industries, which is Jamie Heinemann's shop, the guy in Mythbusters with the beret, Uh, my first day as an intern was also the first day they were filming Mythbusters and somehow this evolution happened where I'm on television and just creating stories and realizing I have an aptitude for it. And I love it. And I love all the opportunities it affords. And I love what we're doing. And it's a constant learning process. So after being in entertainment for long enough, you just learn how to tell the stories.
0: Right. Well, we'll get back to that for sure. What positive change do you see in the world in five years? Because Carrie Byron has taken action.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's pretty presumptuous, but um, I do believe that Explore Media is going to have an incredible impact. Already, we're seeing teachers use our, our videos and lesson plans and coming back with incredible discussions. My kids' classroom used one of our videos, which was uh, a crash test world show where I went to Berlin and learned about um, some Syrian refugees. It was a family and their journey to Berlin to become successful in their new life in Berlin. And it was a daunting story and very hard to tackle because I was thinking, oh my God, how do I tell the story of the refugee crisis? We told it through one family and one little kid. And by giving that story like a human face, giving it some humanity through a familiarity, my nine-year-old kid at the time got to learn about the Syrian refugee crisis. And all the parents and teachers were calling me and saying. How are we having this discussion at our table with our, our young, our young child is telling us more than we know? This is incredible. And it's it was just a really short story of one person's experience so that they could find that empathy and connect the dots.
0: That's excellent. So are there any specific plans that that get you into a place where these kinds of stories are, you know, just taking off and you're 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 touching hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of young people.
1: Well, we've launched Explorer Home and Classroom. So we are just slowly creating more and more content. And all of it has the goal of education through entertainment and inspiration. So hopefully you teach the kids, they teach the adults. That's just the way the world works. I I remember coming home and talking to my mom about recycling. And then next thing I knew, she was washing containers and recycling. Same with my kids. She comes home and she taught me how to really use pronouns correctly because I had not understood before because I had been taught one way and now I'm just trying to be a better person. So I really do think that kids guide us.
0: They guide us into empathy, don't they? Yeah, of course.
1: you know, When you have a kid too, you get this like profound joy from finding them being good people and, and seeing that you could instill that in them. So I mean... If I can make the world a better place in five years maybe it's just because I made one human and she's awesome and she goes off to make the world a better place. I'll take that.
0: Yeah I have two myself and uh, I feel exactly the same way. It, at some point you know touching the entire world is some is somewhat challenging but if you can at least do what's in front of you, you can make some progress for everyone. So let's but I'm actually pretty convinced that we're going to see more from you and I'm excited for what's going on with explore and for what you know as you start to reach out to your community that they start to teach you and then through that teach teach all of us more about what we can do to make the world a little bit better a uh, better place. So tell us though about your art because that's something that that we've I know we're going to get into today and are really interested in in what you were doing with it and how you got to do it yourself? You know, how did you decide?
1: (laughs) I don't think I ever decided to do art. It's always just been something I've been driven to do. It's almost, I almost wish I didn't have it because I get so much more done. I don't think I've ever had a clean room in my life just because I'm more interested in playing with paint, making something. So for me, it's, it's always just been a drive. And I thought I was going to be a working artist when i moved to san francisco i thought you know i was i was in galleries and i was trying so hard and you know i i still needed a day job so that's when mythbusters became my day job and through that i started getting more and more skills and and learning new ways to do art and specifically what drives me now other than the sculpture that i had learned through them was we blew a lot of stuff up on mythbusters and used a lot of different kinds of explosives and i became really interested in the detritus left behind by black powder and its different grains of black powder leave different markings in different ways and the how they are masked off by things that are around them or whether it's foggy that day or sunny because there's more pressure down on top of the little ignition explosion that happens, it's it's always different. It's this chaos that happens. But through all of the different experiences we had, I could see that you could almost control a little bit of the chaos and create something beautiful. So I started taking black powder home with me and playing with it myself and started making artwork with it. And that's something I do a lot. I do live in the city and I'm not sure my neighbors like me and the people next door seem to have a high turnover rate. Maybe the smoke going in their room. I don't know. I don't know. But <laughs> I love the fire. I love the explosion. I love the feeling. I love the experiment that is the artwork that you're making. I, I spend like three days thinking about how I want the explosives to go off. And I carefully try to create and Tailor the black powder, the different grain, the, the ignition system, the paper I'm using all to try to create what I'm thinking of. And it never comes out exactly like I I, I want. And I, I also love that because there's, there's a beauty to the chance.
0: Sometimes you don't know where the end is going to be. You just stepped into it and it's your career and your art. So there we yeah. are, John Michael. I'm going to introduce uh, introduce you to uh, John Michael Scott right now. John Michael and I have have done a, quite a few podcasts along the way, and uh, we have we're going to do a, a little pattern today that we did in a thing we did a long time ago called Blocks Nexus, where we interviewed people who are in the working in the blockchain and crypto, and we found Ugh, ourselves. I love crypto <laughs> <You're>... <laughs> so much.
1: I love crypto. It's fascinating.
0: It's a really exciting uh, new area of the of computing, really. and computing where computing and networking intersect. and we're pretty excited about it too. But what I, I know John Michael has some great questions for you. so let's jump into his, and they're going to be pretty unscripted. I, he's probably been listening for the last uh, 10, 15 minutes, and he's got some ideas of what he wants to ask. So John Michael, go ahead.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: you know, I think that both Stuart and I are
2: exactly right there with you, Carry in regard to blockchain, and that's kind of, at the heart of some of the things that we're interested in in seeing what happens with art and computing of all things coming together, that seems like an anachronism, but but we see some interesting stuff there. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, when you think of um, this this whole attempt to compose fire onto a canvas, I just think to my, you know, my little you know six year old self and looking at all the stuff that was going on in the world. And every time I saw fire, usually something just destroyed itself and was gone. So what was the point where you're like, huh, you know, black powder, you might be able to make that work in a painting. I mean, the first time you tried this, what happened?
1: I mean, I I had blown up so many things on the bomb range and took the pieces of wood home that had black powder imprint on it that I just slowly wanted to incorporate it into what I did at home. So I, I I asked a lot of questions. I found my expert. I have talked with, you know, reps in the black powder industry about different recipes of different kinds of things that they use because quite honestly, black powder is not going to be as available anymore. I think all of the, <laughs> the people that do all of those reenactments are probably freaking out right now and buying everything off the shelves because the number one distributor just went out of business. So there are other recipes. And I'm, I'm a little scared. So I stockpiled too, because I, I want to make sure I can still make my art. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I don't know, the first time I did it, I just thought it was so beautiful. And the first thing I did is I cut out the, one of the women I worked with, because she just had this beautiful silhouette. And I cut it out of wood. So it kind of made, you know, the, I took the negative space, and I put black powder in it, and I lit it off. And so it just it looks like her thoughts <laughs> inside of a silhouette of her head and I gave it to her and she loved it. I was like, I want to keep playing with this. So I've been experimenting ever since. Sometimes it turns out beautiful. Sometimes it's just a mess, but I have a fire extinguisher, a hose and uh, pretty good knowledge now of what it's going to do.
2: Nice. That's amazing. So, you know, I'm just kind of curious when you're, you know, you, you've mentioned, I think in the past when we've talked about stuff that you have recorded the actual experience and, and had a chance to play it back. I mean, have you taken this to like super slow-mo so you can see like the craziness of what's happening in real time or hmm, very slow? I have a
1: iPhone I mostly record with because mm-hmm. it's, it, it's got a great slow-mo feature on it and you can I can see it frame by frame. Mostly it's the fire I'm watching because I love how the fire kind of looks like a beast of its own. I can't really see anything too super slow-mo up close of the black powder itself because I don't have that technology. I think that would take a really insane camera with some housing that would not burn up because I I have had a few iPhone <laughs> that ended up with foggy cameras for a while. and <laughs> you know, I got them just a little too close.
2: <laughs> Who knew that, uh, that iPhones had, you know, eyebrows that could get singed. That's news. <laughs> well, there you have it. So, so I'm kind of curious, you know, one of the reasons that we were curious to explore some things with you is that we're trying to understand what the art community thinks of and where the art community is going with Engaging with blockchain. We're, there's this topic called non fungible tokens or NFTs. And there have been some really interesting things that have happened in the past year having to do with that. But I'm, I'm kind of curious what caught your attention? When did you, you know, what, what was that moment you were like, what the heck is this NFT thing or non fungible token thing? Or what kind of drew your attention in this direction?
1: Well, I've always I was an early adopter of, of cryptocurrency. And when I started to learn what blockchain is, and it's hard to understand, it's I listened to lots and lots of different explanations till I could get to the point where I could explain it. I'm still not entirely sure that I'm even communicating it properly, but I feel like I've got a really good handle on it. And then what I saw that people were starting to do with artwork, and of course everybody heard about the big beeple sale of digital art and i've I've seen a lot of digital artists use this but not a lot of fine artists you know Mm -hmm. i feel like some of the old ways of doing things are getting a little left behind because they haven't been able to monetize in this really great global scale but it's, it's it's bringing a lot of equity to different artists because you could you can put something out into the world and people can access it that might not have been able to go to a gallery in the past that happens to right. be in the city that you happen to be in. And you don't have to have the same sort of PR. It's like a whole different new space and it's young and it's just virile. And it's just all the people that are getting involved are so exciting and it's new. And I, I definitely see... Two drawbacks that the fine artists are having. One is they're scared of the environmental impact because they don't truly understand blockchain and that it's new and that you know it's it's developing. And there's just a lack of cyber native skills in a lot of sort of traditional artists.
2: Sure, sure, that makes sense. And you know, I really appreciate that you brought up the word equity. We, you know, Stuart and I and others have been trying to look at this and say, okay, well, how exactly do you create the conditions for fine artists to be able to consistently make a life out of that? I mean, you mentioned a little earlier that, you know, suddenly you had Mythbusters and it made life possible because before Mythbusters, it was like a hustle, 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 hustle. And I'm kind of curious, you know, what do you think equity looks like? If, if you were to imagine artists being able to like have a thriving life, I, I always refer back to Leonardo da Vinci who managed to successfully retire to a villa at a time when most artists did not get to retire. So I'm curious, what do you think equity looks like for fine artists going forward? What would make well, that that's work? that's tough.
1: I mean, we gotta remember Leonardo ended up, he was first of all brilliant. Um, amazing that helps and had he had patrons and it's hard to find a patron for artists because that's just not i mean that you can you know they've got patreon now and you can Mm. constantly create content but i think that drive to constantly create the content sometimes takes away from the process of making really good content sometimes it's it's really tough because you feel like you have to constantly feed that beast i think that for a artists to really make incredible things they have to feel less of that pressure to you know eat so So it'd be really nice if you yeah uh,
2: so maybe (laughs) that's a thing right so maybe if we are creating the conditions where the patronage can be decentralized Whereas even, even Patreons, to some degree, centralized, you have to know what Patreon is. It's not like this like massive meme stroke that's going across the world saying, oh, anyone should want to pay attention to NFTs and blah, 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 or the crypto community is, of course, decentralized as well. You know, Maybe, do you think that decentralized patronage could play a big role in that creating equity and, and making this more feasible?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, like any, I mean, YouTube, the best influencers rise to the top. Same thing in Hollywood. It's just generally, if you're not good at it anyway, you're probably not going to do it forever, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I feel like you're going to get the, the patrons through NFT if it's something of value you're creating. I'm just, you know, spitballing here because art's a tough game. It's it's a lot of it, a lot of it's really who you know and where you can get. So if in the old days, if you have to get a gallery and you have to get attention and you have to go to all the parties and make all the right friends and talk to all the right collectors and maybe with NFTs, there's already a system in place where you can just concentrate on the art that gets put into the system. And if people buy it, it's because it's got some sort of value or quality for current culture.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point. So if I look at the difference between you know, the world of newspapers and the world of blogs and newspapers, the big thing that was different, of course, is the internet allowed individual writers anywhere in the world to be able to express themselves. And in the history of galleries for fine art, everything has been pretty locked down in the physical world, but maybe this opens a new door and suddenly because you can have digital representations in addition to the physical, that maybe opens up the possibility of a vast quantity of interesting galleries for fine artists that are sp- spread across the globe and are virtualized in an interesting way. You can't get away from that without talking for like a hot second about the word metaverse. Obviously, Facebook has made this very popular term in the past two weeks, so much so that anything that had metaverse tied to it in the stock market went up. But, you know, how would you feel about your (laughs) fine art showing up in the metaverse?
1: I mean, honestly, I I appreciate accessibility. Mm -hmm. I like things to be global. I've done virtual cons before where I've showed up as an avatar and I'm in a world with people from all over the world and people who wouldn't normally have access because maybe, you know, they have a disability or some sort of anxiety or, you know, geographically they could not come to this location. And now I get to have a conversation with them. I get to perform on stage. I did this with Tori and Grant and we had a We had a stage in a virtual world and we basically put on a performance and everybody picked their avatar and they could be anonymous, but it gave them accessibility. So maybe NFT galleries could give a global accessibility and make it easier for people who couldn't go to galleries before.
2: That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so the potential of like, anyone around the world being able to participate with the art, but also anyone around the world potentially to be able to participate with the artists. And that's just virtually impossible with fine art today based on traditional galleries, based on, are you in a major city? Or are you not in a major city? Do you even have a way to get you know, into the gallery in the first place? There's all kinds of other oddities that you know, have been tromping around in the fine art world for centuries. So that's really interesting. If you were to pick you know, one thing that you're hoping for from this sort of weird intersection of you know, digital art, metaverses, these new forms of patronage, decentralized patronage that might take place. Do you have like a thing? Do you have a thing that you're like, I wish this would happen and then?
1: I mean, I would love to see some of the, inc- I have a huge community of artists who sound are really good. I would love to see them be able to make enough money to actually live on and not have to have mm. second jobs. because there are people who I mean, I consider famous, and I've seen in like museums, but right. I know for a fact that they got a day job because mm. it's it's still hard to break in. So I'd like to see more people be able to take technology to foster art because i think there's a real loss when we don't intersect those two worlds i mean let's face it without ada lovelace i mean we would have never taken the idea of pictures and numbers and put them together and you and i would not be talking on this computer right now you know people it's it was the intersection of art and math that created computer science so i love to see any sort of critical thinking curiosity and art mixed with engineering and technology.
2: And I just want to call out for every young female out there in the world. The first computer programmer in the world was just named by Carrie Byron. Ada Lovelace was the first computer programmer. In fact, the guy who created the engineering widgets that she programmed, that guy couldn't program his own machine. That was not a thing. He couldn't do it. So very important. Are you talking about Charles Babbitt?
1: Babbitt? Yeah, that dude.
2: That dude. He couldn't (laughs) even do it.
1: No, no, no. Like I, I, I don't want to discount. He, he created he the did. machine, so I would have to say that inspiration feeds off <laughs> of inspiration, and okay, you can't fair. take away from anybody. So without <laughs> each other, bringing together the two concepts, I mean, where would where would she be?
2: Okay, that's fair. That's fair. That's very fair. She was um, the
1: daughter of Lord Byron, too.
2: Okay, <laughs> she may have had some time. To you know <laughs> do this possibly at a time when not everybody did. So that's that's maybe true. I want to flip the script for half a second and ask you: do you have questions you would want to ask us about this crazy, you know, this mixed up interesting topic that we're all sitting here talking about together?
1: I mean, I, I sometimes just have a hard time understanding like how you specifically code a piece of artwork that somebody owns it but once it's digitized how is it not out in the world so that everybody can access it like how so, do you is it different do you have a different resolution at a different price point? <laughs> like how does somebody create one piece of art i saw it on twitter so i kind of own that because i got to see it <laughs> so how how does one pe- person say this is mine
2: so I'm going to I'm going to like I'm going to call out a really strange strange tale for a second. Paris Hilton is a early adopter of art as it relates to blockchain. Strange but true. And as an early adopter, she has produced pieces do are they my pieces to collect? No, I don't really like the pieces she's created. But on the other hand, I don't like all art anyway. There's some that I do, some that I don't. So, but she said something that I thought was pretty interesting and she did something that was interesting. You know, She sold these pieces and they're out there in the world and somebody out there has the right to sell that piece again. They have the provenance of the piece. They can choose to sell it again. No one else who makes a digital copy of that can ever sell it. They would definitely be liable, at least for lawsuits. They may never get sued, but they would be at least liable. So nobody else can ever do that. But the other thing that was funny is that all of her pieces, she still had... Visual copies of her pieces in in art frames in her own house. I'm like, okay, fair. I mean, people could enjoy this thing, and yet there's an owner who has a you know has a, a certificate that says I own this, and they can sell it, not sell it, do whatever they gotta do with it. But to your point, though, there are definitely in the world of non fungible tokens, there are definitely different manifestations of this. So one manifestation could be that you, you know, you create the finest experience and the finest experience is this extremely high resolution version of Dolce & Gabbana crown that also is manifest as a physical crown. And you get, as the person who owns the physical crown, you get the, you know, the 65k resolution, blah, blah, blah. And, and you're the only one and nobody else in the world has that incredible fineness of detail in the representation. And maybe you get extra features like Kings of Leon came up with this idea where you get a golden ticket and your golden ticket gets you into the first four, you know, the first row, front row of, you know, a certain number of concerts for a certain period of time with three of your friends. And if that's what, you know, you want to flex that, and that's your status. Okay. Then that's yours. It's your golden ticket. Nobody else, in the, you know, in the known universe has that golden ticket. It's it's all you. So there's a lot of interesting different, permutations of this but I also think this is like baseball cards right you know you got a baseball card you, you don't know what you're getting. it's a box full of cards you get tops you know 2021 rookie cards and a mix of other stuff then you don't know what you're getting. you pay your 35 hopefully there's something good in there and sort of like that you know you you choose because you're interested in this, and you think that Carrie makes some whiz bang art. You're like, this is so cool. I want the trading card version of this, or this is so cool. I want the you know the background for my for my laptop, and I want to be able to print a, a print and post it on my wall. Or this is so mm-hmm. cool. I want the original painting. So those okay. are all permutations. So I'm gonna... it's
1: almost like a Kickstarter model.
2: It kind you know? of is a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yep. So a, I want to add something in there. I agree with you that it, it, there's a bit of the uh, the crowdsourcing or Kickstarter model where you offer different levels to different people along the way, which I think is really I think valuable. But I want to take that and and make it a little more of the or get a little bit more of the theory behind it. Okay, so one of the things that that happens is if you have a very very exceptional piece of art, could be physical, could even be digital, could be some combination, but it's a very exceptional piece of work. A piece of work that is so forward thinking that it changes the way everyone looks at the world. And they start to like try to copy that concept, right? That level of artistry, that level of, of nuance and front running of the art world is only made really popular because everyone can see it. So it's not as scary, right? Right? Because everyone can see it. And in fact, they, they all want to see it and they all want to, they all want to have some touch, uh, connection to it. They wanna experience it in some way. But they can never fully experience the, the really original part unless they're present with it. And so I think back to some of the, the old things like Frederick Church, who used to make these enormous paintings and charge 25 cents to go in and see it, right? This is, he lived back in the, the late 19th century, and his works were beautiful. And now today, though, we can get them on cards. We can <laughs> we get posters, right? We can, we can see it on... You just... Put his name in on Google and you'll see all of his images, right? So they're available to anyone, but I bet if you went back and tried to buy one of his original paintings, that might cost you some money. And so there's, yeah. I think, a, a really distinct difference between that. And that's, like, from a theoretical perspective, very important for us uh, as we go forward because, you know, a really, and you talked about this, Carrie. there are exceptional artists in the world, right? And it really takes that kind of exceptionalism to be recognized at the level that you want to be recognized so that you can, you know, have a, a career where you don't go and work, you know, you don't go work for a school or a college or something like that, you, you just do your art. So I think what we're, we're kind of getting at too is that, you know, some of the questions though that I see is to enable someone to get to that place of exceptionalism so they can get the 10,000 hours of work, right? Because they need to be able to keep putting the work in. I think they do need to get paid along the way. And I'm hoping that crypto is one of those Things that can can make that difference. Right. So and that so that's actually gets me a question to you now, which is what are some of those maybe the skills that you think um, you lack or other artists lack that maybe uh, people in the crypto community could provide to help you?
1: I definitely feel that a lot of physical artists don't have some of these cyber skills necessary to market through online network, just like I would have a gallery do all the advertising and the reach to find collectors and and connect you with the collectors so that you could tell them the story that makes them want the piece. That's something that I feel like there needs to be like an NFT gallerist that helps Mm -hmm. connections for people. I I definitely think that it's the hardest thing to do. Everybody tries to go out and get that agent. Because a lot of creatives just don't have the business side.
2: Fair. Yeah, it's great. Well, and also, you know, I'd say that in general, whether it's, you know, fine artists or any creative, I mean, creative people would prefer to spend their time creating. I mean, even if they have the business savvy, they still might prefer to spend their time creating. So sometimes you just, you know, you need that partner in crime, your agent, your whatever to take care of that side because it frees you up to, you know, do the things you love the most. Oh, yeah. I mean,
1: I pay someone to do my taxes. I don't want to spend my time doing my taxes. I pay someone (laughs) to fix the things that I don't want to fix. Like, I just, you know, as far as art, I would love a fixer so I could concentrate on, you know, the beauty of the black powder and the the (laughs) explosions and the, like, I want to do all the fun stuff.
0: (laughs) Very good. And you tell the story along the way, which is also a big part of it, right? Where, okay, so I'm kind of thinking about a little bit about your art. Who resonates with your art? Who, when they they see it goes, Carrie, I really want one of your pieces.
1: You know, when I've shown before, a lot of artists, I think I might be like Rush, you know, where only musicians like it. <laughs> <And so laughs> we're like artists come in and like see what you're trying to do because I try to keep things simple and let the medium tell the story. Like I know that when I put this pile here and this pile here and I use this pipe and I use the you know use these stakes to hold it in the right way, I know I'm thinking of a mother and a daughter. And the energy between them. And I've got a whole story. But I keep it as simple as possible. And not try to. I don't add words. And I try not to add too many. Mm -hmm. Descriptions. So that you just can maybe. Feel that energy. I don't know. That's getting a little little arty. But I feel like artists understand that. They understand. understand process. They understand like. It doesn't need to be. You know. A picture portrait representation of a girl. It's. This little is the girl
0: there's something to do with the the work the innate you know creativity that you have going on that involves a little bit of chaos and explosions and and that fun energy that you have is something that's resonating with people do you feel that when you actually are just talking to people and and maybe does that be part of something that you're doing with the explorer media and some of those videos that you're doing
1: I've never made that connection before, but I think you might be right. I really, I, I think I'm trying to tell a story with something abstract and with the media company, I'm trying to tell a story by highlighting other people's stories.
0: Yeah, the energy is awesome. That's the, that's a thing that, that you bring that I, I would just share with you. You bring an energy that lights up a room and that's really valuable. You know, that's just a huge thing in the world that we need more of. So uh, you have this uh, young daughter and I'm sure mm-hmm. you've met some of her friends now, right? What are they? Of course. Do? Of course. What do they talk about? <laughs> right. If you can, if you can actually get them to share with you.
1: <laughs> I mean, no, I actually, I, I've, I don't know, maybe it's cause I have pink hair or because I have a weird <laughs> job, but I really, I end up talking with the kids all the time at those parties where it's adults and kids. I'm usually hanging out with them. Maybe it's cause I'm just trying to learn something, but they talk about TikTok and current trends and they, they love to talk about the, you know, drama of different stars. I mean, there's there's definitely a lot going on there. Kids are more informed on politics and global issues and the state of climate change than I believe I was when I was a tween. Like they, they actually are caring about a bigger world and I think that brings me hope because I I I mean, I did all the same things. I looked through Seventeen Magazine the way they look through TikTok, but I don't remember knowing exactly what was going on in Congress. Whereas these kids, my daughter said she wants to be AOC someday. She's like, okay, well, I guess I need to get good grades so I can go to Stanford and then maybe lawyer or business school so that I could be a congressperson. I'm like, what?
0: At your age, most
1: people want to be like a fireman or a rock star, that's nuts. so i i I, <laughs> I definitely think that kids are talking about much more sophisticated things than we give them credit for.
0: Hmm. yeah, I've learned by from my own children that they were thinking about a lot more than I even understood or knew and that th- those things that they wanted to do came out later. and we said, well, you know whenever you want to do something we'll support you and we'll give you whatever you need to do what it is that you want to do. So what is it that they need you think? I mean, now that you've talked to a few of them, what is it that maybe you could be doing that would would help them along?
1: Oh, man. <laughs> I think that you can be it. So one of the things that I hope NFTs and crypto also does is democratize everything from currency to art. I want to see people of all sorts of diverse backgrounds making it. And I think by showing new and different kinds of role models in the world. I I think that kids are going to dream bigger. So I love the idea that somebody can create a piece of digital art. You don't know what they look like, and it's not going to be the typical person that you would expect. And they're like, oh, you know what? They come from where I come from. They understand what I do. They look like me. I can do that too.
0: So it's really interesting and, and- and actually really awesome that we have a democratized, decentralized Web3 coming up because more people should be able to reach more people without somebody in the middle saying, no, I'm sorry, you can't you can't see that, right? Censorship resistance is a big, big, big part of this whole community. And it's a really amazing thing to enable as many artists as possible because of their- Well, there is, there's a great example of
2: that, actually. There was a, a boy who, during his break from school, he came up with what are known as weird whales, and he just did it because he could. And his weird whales were successful because people were intrigued by his weird whales, digital art. He just did it. And I think that that's pretty amazing to allow for the possibility that he could just go, okay, boom, here's a new thing. And, you know, and succe- very successful. I mean, I don't want to get into the economics of it, but he was very successful in what he did. And that was possible because there was no curatorial resistance. There was no, you know, the art world resisting. It was a complete upending of how something got produced and how something got distributed. So,
1: So how do you think somebody who's a very traditional artist, like a sculptor, can Mm -hmm. make an NFT? Like, like, I know I'm I'm not supposed to do this. No, it's great. Bring something over.
2: I mean, decided I'm really enjoying the skeleton standing next to the world on fire.
1: That's George. Okay, so when my daughter was little yeah. and I needed to teach her manners or get her out of bad habits, I would create these, like, these little monsters, right? They were, we called them mommy's manners monsters. So this one nice. in particular is the nail biter monster. So if he smells freshly chewed nail beds, you'll sneak into your room and finish off your nails and you'll wake up with bloody stumps for fingers like i mean it's some dark stuff but like this is this little critter that was important to me my daughter and every time a kid comes over they're like oh my god i love that and they want to touch it <laughs> so how do i take something like this turn it into an nft that makes it you know accessible to other people that might be can interested I, in these Can i tell you something things.
2: i feel like you just did yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to say this. I feel like you just did. So there's a couple things that just came to my mind as you were talking about this. Number one, there's a story. Now, how many other moms and dads around the world are going to be like, that's a good idea. What's the name of that little monster again? Oh, and how many of them are going to be like, wow, what if we could have like a little playing card that showed that? And then we could talk about the manners monsters and we could have this set of cards. We could talk with our kids about the manners monsters on these cards. How cool would that be? I mean, you just described an NFT because to me, you created a story, you can create a compelling connection. There was this heart to it and this heart had meaning that people could identify with. So could that be translated into then digital representation with backing story and a visual you know, a visual aid that could be, you know, if they wanted to, they could print it onto a low card because they had the high enough resolution object that they go go to Kinko's and make cards. Could they do that? And the answer is yes. To me, the answer could is yes.
1: Could you do a 3D scan and sell the scan so that you totally. can print it yourself?
0: Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Well, That's well, there's interesting to me. 3D printed. I, a couple of yeah, things I, mean, I want to say on the 3D. I mean, yeah, you, yeah. you should be doing, well, first of all, all NFTs have extra value when they go into a digital experience where that digital experience can also unlock any encrypted or private art as it were digitized art so there should be art that everyone can see and then there may be art that is encrypted that only you can unlock because you bought it and you want to keep it private for yourself or you want to have private showings for it right and so that part once you get past that first part, you go, boy, this really changes everything, doesn't it? Because in the in the physical world, that's how it works, right? I have, a, I have an original piece of art. It sits in my house. I can invite someone over to see my piece, right? Or I can share it with an art gallery of some kind. But when we went to the web 2 or the web, right, then all of a sudden JPEGs are everywhere and you can copy the JPEG and there's really no security for it. But if you can then go into a universe where they actually protect that and so somebody's thought through that digital environment it's more of a walled garden but that's okay because we're we're creating an experience for people right then that world where in that world nfts are really great and there you could definitely scan it in 3d and you could definitely have virtual reality glasses and see it in 3d you could turn it around if you wanted I mean, that's, I, I absolutely believe that. And I, I actually want to do it for um, some of the sculptors that I have as friends who have art in my house. I would like to, but even, hey, let's get this going.
2: But even to take that a couple steps further, one of the things that Carrie said that I really appreciated was the idea that, you know, the manners monsters could be, yes, you could create the three dimensional scan, but you could also flip it right back out into the physical world by 3D printing the, the 3D scan. So we can actually, you know, flip, flip the script multiple times, not even a problem.
0: Yeah, if you had the rights to, to make the scan, or excuse me, to, to do the 3D printing, you could yeah. actually do your own 3D printing, but maybe no one else has the rights to do it, right? That'd be actually pretty cool. Yeah. Or okay. they could
2: get smaller yeah. versions, they could get bigger versions, you could do the... Okay, so there's a guy named Rick Adams who started one of the earliest internet companies and he was a big fan of Star Wars. And Rick Adams, no kidding, had a Millennium Falcon on his property in Vienna, Virginia. And, you know, it must have been a big property because that's a big freaking beast of a.
1: That's big.
2: Yeah. Yeah, right? It's pretty big. But, you know, you can see a situation where there's variants of this. Like the family in, you know, in Provence decides that they want manners monsters their size of chess pieces. And they 3D print all these little manner Monsters chess pieces. And then they play out, yes, chess, but also they play out talking about manners while playing chess. That's a feasible activity when you start, you know, flipping this these scripts back and forth like that. I don't know. I think so you just as totally... as an artist
1: or a sculptor, I think that's the hard part is like, I've got the sculpture. I know how to make that. What I don't have is... Fancy scanning equipment. So you need to bridge the, the gap between the physical yeah. and the digital. So maybe that's yeah. what I would hope that if the world could create some sort of bridge for me to figure out how to find the right people that maybe there's a maker shop that has that for you, you know, like mm-hmm. an NFT Let's- maker shop.
2: It's funny because you know San Francisco is an interesting place when it comes to maker shops but I'll just say without saying that you know there was some history around a shop called Tech Shop but there's a new shop that exists somewhere in San Francisco I'd have to pin it down but it is conceivable that this could definitely happen and if you know, if we if we look at the explosiveness of fine art into NFT and other things into NFT, well, then there's a tipping point where where this becomes so desirable that it makes sense to have maker shops all around the world. And what's that worth anyway? What if all kinds of kids could go through and make their own stuff in maker shops? That would not be a bad thing. So
1: that'd be very cool. I'm intrigued
2: by this. I'm very intrigued by this.
1: Oh, it seems like there's. We could talk for the whole night about different directions for this that's that's
0: <laughs> you no know, actually carrie that brings <laughs> up an idea that maybe we do have an event sometime or an evening where we get some other people who are thinking about some of these solutions i think that'd be pretty yeah. cool. like a
1: mass people that aren't artists that can draw or sculpt but are um uh, Whiz with the computer might love to be part of a creative process and collaborate with everybody's different skill sets to make the end product as the NFT. Because I would, I personally love collaborating on things, and I love when somebody's an expert in something that I can't do, and then we can make something cool together.
0: You
2: know, there's some funky history there too in the history of computing. Graphic art uh, was first done by a fine artists who came to a computer lab to explore what could be done with the computer. And this story is talked about in the computer science museum or computer early history of museum, museum of computer history in Mountain View. It's actually a thing. And there's a story about exactly that kind of collaboration back in the late 50s, 60s. This is a while ago. Sorry to interrupt you, Stuart. It's
0: all right. So we're coming towards the end of our initial conversation here today. It sounds like we're going to do some more in the future i really look forward to that is there anything we need to to cover before we you know we send off our podcast listeners so my last
2: thought and i'll just throw it out there is you know we are we are talking about this because we're we're super curious as to what nft for fine arts looks like and this you know this podcast in some ways is certainly an exploration for Stuart and I, for Carrie, for all of us. So, you know, I'm definitely interested in seeing what we can come up with and do together and just to explore this topic some more. Carrie, what are your thoughts?
1: I love the idea of collaborating with the art that I make in my studio with the new and exciting technologies. So if I could actually take black powder art and not just hang it on someone's wall, but Possibly give them an experience in it because nobody gets to see the fire but me unless I record it. Nobody gets mm-hmm. to really smell it. Well, I guess you can't really record the smell, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you don't get the I don't know. There's new
2: technologies of it. every day. Really <laughs> there are some
1: yeah, technologies. I love, I love that. that. There are some. You don't actually want to smell it. Sulfur smells like farts, but there's there's a burning that's also very
0: good.
2: Nice. Nice. Good to know that that's why your neighbors are so friendly. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm excited for, I'm excited for that. I'm also excited for the stories that you're going to be telling to the young people in the next generation. And in some ways, maybe not telling them the stories, but letting them tell their stories. And that's That's exactly right. That's very exciting. We're looking forward to that. So with that, I mean, I I'm such a, I'm so thankful that we had the time together, Carrie. And, uh, you know, even though in, in this time of COVID, we don't travel as much and we, maybe don't get around, we are able to to connect and have this conversation, and I'm looking forward to doing this again.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you so much, Carrie.